I've been listening to this podcast recently called It Was Said, and my wife had recommended it to me. It's uh, hosted by John Meacham, who's a national historian, and it looks at political speeches, and they do excerpts from these speeches, and they do interviews with people, and I find it absolutely fascinating. And so when she told me about it, I clicked on some of the different episodes to download, and I saw this one that said President Obama's Charleston uh, sermon. And I was like, well, that's really interesting. I wonder what that's about. So I clicked on it, and I didn't realize that uh, President Obama had done the eulogy at the AME church where, um, remember, those parishioners were shot by a white supremacist. And he was there speaking about how that church had handled that situation with much grace and how even then they were extending grace to others. And then I got chills down my spine when President Obama began to sing Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. That's an amazing song, and I thought it was really interesting to hear President Obama's sermon at that funeral. But he also encouraged them to extend grace even to those people who hate them and would seek to do them harm. And I thought that that sentiment is really a biblically informed sentiment that comes from Jesus himself. And we do like to sing that song about amazing grace, especially when we apply it to ourselves. But it's much harder to apply it to those people that we do not like, right? Especially those who have hurt us or maybe even want to hurt us. And I, can't, I thought about that, that time when Jeff, oh, I'm sorry, when uh, Max Lucado, rather, wrote about Jeffrey Dahmer. Do you remember that story when he was talking about Jeffrey Dahmer and what disturbed him most about Jeffrey Dahmer? It's in his book called The Grip of Grace, and he says this. You know what disturbs me most about Jeffrey Dahmer? What disturbs me most are not his acts, though they are disgusting. Dahmer was convicted of 17 murders. Eleven corpses were found in his apartment. My thesaurus has 204 synonyms for vile, but each falls short of describing a man whose skull, who collected skulls in his refrigerator and hoarded a human heart. He redefined the boundary for brutality. The Milwaukee monster dangled from the lowest rung of human conduct and then dropped. But that's not what troubles me most. Can I tell you what troubles me most about Jeffrey Dahmer? Not his trials, as disgusting as it was, with all those pictures of him sitting serenely in court, face frozen, motionless, no sign of remorse, no hint of regret. Remember his steely eyes and impassive face? But I don't speak of him because of his trial. There is another reason. Can I tell you what troubles me about Jeffrey Dahmer? Not his punishment, though life and without parole is hardly an exchange for his actions. How many years would satisfy justice? a lifetime in jail for every life he took, but that's another matter. And that's not what troubles me most about Jeffrey Dahmer. May I tell you what does? His conversion. Months before an inmate murdered him, Jeffrey Dahmer became a Christian. Said he repented, was sorry for what he did, profoundly sorry. Said he put his faith in Christ, was baptized, started life over, began reading Christian books and attending chapel. Sins washed, soul cleansed, past forgiven. He said, that troubles me. It shouldn't, but it does. Grace for a cannibal? Maybe you've had the same reservations. It's not a, if not about Dahmer, perhaps about someone else. Ever wrestled with the deathbed conversion of a rapist? 
or the 11th hour conversion of a child molester. We've sentenced them, maybe not in court, but in our hearts. We put them behind the bars and locked the door. They are forever imprisoned by our disgust. And then the impossible happens. They repent. Our response, dare we say it? We cross our arms and furrow our brows and say, God won't let you off that easy, not after what you've done. God is kind, but he's no wimp. Grace is for average sinners like me, not deviants like you. What an amazing statement. Grace is for average sinners like me, not deviants like you. Though Max Lucado wrote those words some 2,500 years after Jonah walked to the face of this earth, I think Jonah would say, exactly. Grace is for ordinary sinners like us, but not deviants, and especially not deviants like those deviants who lived in Nineveh. You see, God had called this prophet who ministered in Israel among his own people to go to Nineveh, which in the ancient world was known as Sin City. It was a place of violence, of oppression. You didn't go there for vacation to see one of these ancient wonders of the world. You stayed away from that place because it was full of blood. And so when God called Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach to them the message he was going to give them, he went the exact opposite way. And as the story goes, he tried to sail as far away as Tarshish, which was on the coast of Spain, the opposite direction. And if you know anything about the story, you know that it goes along the lines of God appointing this giant fish who consumed Jonah after he was thrown overboard in the ship. And there he was for three days and three nights. And God supernaturally preserved this man. And in that moment of darkness and being alone with the fish and with God. He said salvation belongs to the Lord, and he had this conviction that he was going to live and that God was going to preserve him. And so God commanded that fish to spit him up on the shore, and if Jonah thought that he was going to go back to Israel and hang out with his people and tell them about this amazing story of what just happened to him, he had another thing coming. God told him a second time, Arise, go to Nineveh, and proclaim to it the message that I give to you. And so he goes to Nineveh, and he proclaims the message to them. And he says to them, Yet for 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. <laughs> that was it. That was the message. It was all bad news. Wasn't anything uplifting about it. Wasn't anything encouraging. It was all bad news. If you guys don't repent, it's going to end up badly for you. And then the impossible happened. They repented. The scriptures tell us in chapter 3 that the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. Even the king repented. That'd be the equivalent of the president of the United States repenting and then issuing a decree that everyone needs to turn from his evil ways. I mean, that's what happened. I mean, not even Jesus had the kind of reception that Jonah had in Nineveh. So that's where the story ends. And if you read kids' books... That's where the story ends. I'm sorry, that's not where the story ends. If you were to read kids' books, that's where the story ends with chapter 3. Nineveh repenting, mass revival taking place, and Jonah looking like maybe a hero, right? But the Bible has another chapter that's not included in those children's books, and Charles read that for, this morning, for us this morning, and we're going to look at that. We're told at the end of chapter 3, though, that when God saw what they did, they turned from their evil way, and God relented of the disaster he was going to bring upon them. That word evil is a Hebrew word, ra. 
So if you read, for example, in, in Genesis chapter 3 about Adam and Eve taking the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and raw, that's the word that is used there. And I'm just saying that because there's, there's a Hebrew rhyme that's going to take place in these verses here. So imagine yourself as Jonah. You're given this impossible task to go to Nineveh, and you proclaim this negative message, and massive revival takes place. They repent. I mean, this is good, right? <laughs> Think about Kyle Field packed with over 100,000 people last night. There's 120,000 people in Nineveh. All of them repented. You would think that Jonah would be thrilled to death. But we're told in chapter 4, verse 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. What's interesting about that word displeased is it actually is an echo of that previous word we just heard, raw. It's yara. And it means to be so displeased or grieved because of some terrible evil that took place. In fact, Tim Mackey of the Bible Project translates it like this. It was evil to Jonah, a great evil, and there was heat, anger in him. Do you see what's going on here? God had mercy and compassion on Nineveh. And in Jonah's estimation, what God did was evil. And he was angry about it. In fact, that word anger in the original Hebrew means to grow hot with anger. That's why Tim Mackey translated it as heat anger. To blaze with flurry, a fury, to be incensed. When you think of someone who's just angry and their face is on fire, we even portray it in cartoons as smoke coming out of their ears. Okay, that is Jonah. And Tim Keller, in his commentary on this book, asked the question that we ought to be asking at this point. Why then, when Jonah had just preached to the toughest audience of his life, and they have responded positively down to the last person, why would he melt down with rage? So picture Jonah, angry, livid, incensed that God would have mercy on this place. We're told in verse 2, he prayed, which normally is a good thing. But in this situation, he reveals his heart for all to see. Verse 2, he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my own country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in love and relenting from disaster. Isn't that revealing? He says, this is exactly why I didn't want to go to Tarshish. Not because he feared that his mission would be a failure, but because he feared it would be a success. He didn't want to go to Tarshish, not because he might get skinned alive or killed, but because if they repented, God would have mercy on them. And he could not stand that. And he says in verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Isn't this bizarre? Jonah says, because you are the way that you are, because you have the audacity to have mercy and compassion and kindness on the worst of the worst, I don't want to live in a universe like that. And I don't want to live with a God like that. So just kill me now. Isn't that crazy? 
echoing Max Lucado, Jonah might have said something like this. Grace is for average sinners like me, not deviants like those Ninevites. The Bible Project has a, a seminary-level course on the book of Jonah taught by Tim Mackey that you can take for free, and I'd encourage you to do so if you want to dive deeper in this. And in that course, Tim Mackey referred to a collection of poems written by a guy named Thomas John Carlyle on the book of Jonah. And I just want to read a couple of them for you. This is from a poem called Addiction. Consistently, Jonah chided his stupid and incredible creator for his addiction to mercy, as though it were some miracle drug. Isn't that great? Jonah here is chiding his creator for his addiction to mercy, as if it's some kind of miracle drug. Verse 4, the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Notice God pursuing the heart of his prophet who is incensed that God is this way. And God says, do you do well to be angry? The New International Version translates it, is it right for you to be angry? The New American Translation translates it as, do you have a good reason to be angry? God is asking Jonah this question. And Jonah doesn't answer. He ignores God. We're told in verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. Isn't that interesting? Jonah doesn't answer God about whether he has a right to be angry. Instead, he just goes outside and he, he, he positions himself east of the city and he wants to watch Nineveh. Probably because he thinks that this repentance isn't going to last very long. God's going to have a change of mind, come to his senses, and actually rain fire and brimstone down from the sky and destroy this place. That book of poems I referred to a while ago has another one called Counselor to the Almighty. And in it, John, I'm sorry, Thomas John Carlyle says, Think twice before you pardon. Men repent, in, even in ashes, but repent again of their repentance. Take the wise bias of my advice. Confine your charity to such good neighbors as your humble servant. <laughs> of course, he's putting this poem in the mouth of Jonah, but we can imagine Jonah thinking that way. This isn't going to last very long, God. I'm just going to sit here and watch you do what you ought to do. If you're not going to kill me, then take out this city. And we're told in verse 6, Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. This is almost humorous, right? Jonah's out there pouting. The, the sun is bearing down upon him. And just like God appointed this supernatural beast to swallow him up, now appoints a plant to grow up supernaturally over him, to give him shade. And we're told that Jonah was exceedingly glad because of this plant. <laughs> Earlier he was exceedingly angry because God had compassion upon them. You would think if, if Jonah was going to be exceedingly glad about anything, it would be that these people repented of the evil that they did. But that's not what made him glad. What made him glad was this little plant grew up over him, and he could get a little bit of relief from the sun. Then in verse 7, we're told, But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm to attack the plant so that it withered. 
When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was spanked. We see God pursuing his prophet, but now he's messing with him a little bit. (laughs) The next day, Jonah gets up. Maybe this is the day that God is going to judge these people. So God commands the swarm to go gnaw at this plant. It withers in the heat. God sends this scorching wind, and Jonah is miserable. You see, sometimes God comforts the afflicted, and sometimes he afflicts the comfortable. That's exactly what's going on here. Verse 8, and he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. (laughs) Here a second time, Jonah says, I don't want to live in this kind of universe. God, if you're going to be merciful and compassionate, not to average sinners like me, but to deviants like the Ninevites, I don't want to live. And then again, in verse 9, God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? In other words, look at your heart, Jonah. You're hacked off that this plant has withered upon you. And all Jonah can say back is, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. Imagine this prophet that people had considered a godly man in Israel. Remember, he had called called the nation back to repentance. And now he's having it out with God, saying he would rather die to see him behave this way. Note how Jonah, even now, even now is experiencing God as gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in love, even though he doesn't have the good sense to see it. Not that God is being that to the Ninevites, which he was, but God is being this to him in this moment of having a pity party and throwing a fit. And so this is how the chapter ends. Verse 10, the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. He says, You pity this plant, Jonah. That word pity just simply is the the Hebrew word to mean to look upon with compassion. And then verse 11, And should not I pity the plant? I'm sorry. Should I not... Uh, pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Jonah, you, you pity your plant, and you're mad at me for, for pitying these people. If it's right for you to have compassion for your plant, then why is it wrong for me to have compassion for these people? There's 120,000 people in this city who, morally speaking, don't know up from down. They don't know their right hand from their left. It ends with, and also much cattle. Jonah, at least care about the cows in this city. The cows, Jonah. That's how the book ends. We don't know how Jonah responded. We're left to wonder, aren't we? But more than that, the book of Jonah is is really trying to mess with us, as Tim Mackey said. It's like this mirror that we open up, and it asks us, do we see ourselves in this character of Jonah? Are you okay with God showing love and kindness to your enemies? Are you okay with God 
being kind and gracious and longing to see even those people who've hurt you turn to him in repentance and faith. I think that's what Jonah, not the person, but the book is pressing upon us. So I have three points of application for us as we conclude our time together in Jonah. The first one is this. Let's side with the compassionate heart of God. Let's find ourselves on the side of the compassionate heart of God. See, Jonah is outside having a fit, and he's not siding with the compassionate heart of God. Jonah, you would think, as a prophet of God, would be rejoicing that they had repented. And as a Hebrew, being inside that city and and discipling people, saying, this is the way to walk. This is the way that God calls us to be human. Let's let's follow him in a new way of being human. Let's, Let's learn how to love one another. That's what Jonah should be doing. But he's not. And so let me ask you this question. And just a heads up, it, it's, a, it's a mean question. Is there anyone who, if they genuinely experienced the forgiveness of God, would make you furious? If anyone has a right to be furious that God would have compassion on someone, it would be Rachel, Rachel Den Hollander. You know Rachel Den Hollander as that attorney and former U.S. Olympic gymnast who was the first to accuse Larry Nassar of molesting her. And horror of horrors to find out in the wake of that, once she was brave enough to, to name him, to bring charges against him, to find out that some 265 other women had been molested by this man who was entrusted to their, uh, they entrusted themselves to his care. He's the team physician. In court, Larry Nassar was seen carrying a Bible around. Most people were pretty cynical about that and thought it was a prop to to want um, some leniency or something like that. But in the victim impact statement, Rachel got up and with full courage said these words. If you have read the Bible you carry, you know the definition of the sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay the penalty for sin that he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to live this way. But Larry, if you read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things, as if good deeds can erase what you've done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done in all of its utter depravity and horror without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen in this courtroom today. The Bible you carry says it is better for a stone to be thrown around your neck and you thrown into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble, and you have damaged hundreds. The Bible you speak of carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing guilt. I'm sorry, the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Isn't that amazing? No one would have faulted Rachel if she, should, if she stood up in court 
and said, you deserve to rot in hell forever. In fact, probably most of us would have stood by her side applauding it. But she says, the fact that you deserve that is what makes the gospel of Jesus so sweet. And she calls him to repent and extends her forgiveness to him as well, if he were to do so. See, my friends, Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus says, I've come to call the sick. I've come to call sinners to repentance. Does our heart connect with the mission of Jesus? Now someone says, that illustration about Dahmer really rubs me the wrong way. I mean, if what you're saying is true, then he gets off scot-free before God. How would you answer someone who says something like that? Well, it is true that he gets off scot-free before God, but that's not because justice has been miscarried, but rather justice has been executed fully, but not on Jeffrey Dahmer, on the Lord Jesus Christ. I have a graphic, which if you could see it, shows an outline of Jesus on the cross, and then that outline has the sins of humanity written on it. Things like lust, anger, murder, pornography, hatred, killing, violence, revenge. You see, Jesus, when he died on the cross, was considered the child molester. He was considered the serial killer. He was considered the Ninevites. He was considered you and all that you've done wrong. I know that you haven't gone on a killing spree. At least I don't know about it if you have. (laughs) But Jesus offers himself in the place of people like you and me like those Ninevites, and like deviants. So the question is, is, does my heart imitate the heart of God who cannot wait to celebrate with all kinds of people in his kingdom? That's why Jesus came. Here's a second point of application. Let's be humbled by the fact that God loves even his enemies. That's actually good news. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 5, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Yeah, you haven't gone on a serial killing rampage, and thank God for that. But the Bible tells us that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have done what is evil in his sight. All of us, by nature, are sinners. By nature, are ungodly. By nature, are wayward. By nature, are his enemies. And it's when we were enemies that God reconciled himself to us. And as Rachel Denhaller said, that's what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. That God loves even his enemies and extends grace to them. Jesus himself said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Scott Sauls, a pastor in Nashville, had some interesting words in a book called Befriend. He said, God who so loved the world gave his Son in order to seek and to save the lost and to make a way for every person, conservative and liberal, affluent and bankrupt, happy and depressed, with PhDs and with special needs, healthy and addicted, on the move and tired, secular and religious, approachable and angry at the universe, to join the shared communion of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not as servants in his kingdom, but as heirs in his kingdom. Not as bastards, but as beloved daughters and sons. Not as prostitutes, but as his bride, his cherished queen. 
So that first point of application was, let's side with the compassionate grace of God. That second point of application was, let's be humbled by the fact that God loves his enemies. That's actually really good news for us. And the third point of application is this. Let's join God in his mission of bringing grace to this world. We can't leave the book of Jonah without hearing it calling us to speak about God's grace, to join God in his mission of bringing grace even to the worst of the worst. The Apostle Paul, who himself was guilty of executing Christians, came to know Christ, and he would later write these words in 1 Corinthians. For though I am free of all, I have made myself a servant of all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. And if he lived at Jonah's time, he might have said, to, I became like the Ninevites, to, to win the Ninevites. Paul goes on and says, I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Here's why we should want to see the grace of God come even to the worst of the worst. So they can escape the snare of the evil one who's taken them captive to do their will. To be renewed in the grace and compassion of God and made to be like Jesus Christ. My friends, may you always be found siding and rejoicing with the compassionate grace of God. And that is the book of Jonah.